0: Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education pediatric podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Welcome
1: to Grand Rounds on this Tuesday morning. Good to have everyone. Hope you're enjoying your cup of coffee, getting ready for, I know, a busy day. Uh, Before I introduce the lecture, I just want to, again, recognize uh, the teams that have been very, very busy uh, in our inpatient units in the emergency department and our critical care units, Uh, the, the physicians, the residents, the advanced practitioners, our nurses respiratory therapists uh farm techs everyone has been uh, really tasked with the surge in volume and with respiratory viruses Uh, i've never seen it like this been here for 25 years and and uh, the volume is really something that uh, has never occurred within connecticut children's Uh, i'm really uh, honored to work with such great group of people professionals that have uh, really given their all to provide the care for these kids that are coming in uh, almost constantly throughout the night. So thank you to all of you. I hope you can get some rest and uh, we will get through this. Be not afraid. This is something that we have done before and we will do it again. We did it in the midst of the pandemic and we will do it again. So hang in there, but thank you for, for me and everyone uh, at Connecticut Children's and the Department of Pediatrics. Now this morning's lecture is, uh, is one that honors uh, Dr. Robert Greenstein. Uh, Bob, as he liked to be called, uh, uh, was one of a special kind of of individuals and physicians within the the Department of Pediatrics. And uh, this is the eighth Robert Greenstein Grand Rounds. uh, And and we initiated this back in 2015 as we established uh, this honorary Grand Rounds to celebrate Bob's formidable stewardship and exemplary accomplishments in pediatrics. And it will continue to remind us, as long as I'm chair, uh, Dr. Greenstein's legacy as a care and pediatrician, a teacher, a mentor, an innovative leader in newborn screening and genetic counseling and uh, the newborn screening component to this which is he really was one of the pioneers in the country is something that will be uh, obviously today will be a, a part of the topic of Grand Rounds as we move forward and also it, it also uh, allows us to uh, thank the people that are, have uh, this program have continued to work with this program especially Dr. Karen Rubin who's here in the in the auditorium today, or the, the studio, not auditorium. Uh, and she's been a formidable, uh, really steward in getting uh, Connecticut uh, to be at the forefront of newborn screening in the new era with innovation. So thank you, Karen, for what you're doing and keeping us moving. Today's Grand Rounds, I'm, I'm gonna ask uh, Dr. Luisa Kalsner to introduce Dr. David Kron. Uh Now, Luisa is one of those other individuals that has been really working very hard here in Connecticut Children's. Uh, she became head of the Division of Genetics just a few months ago, and I'm so grateful with her for accepting that challenge. Uh, she is formidable her, herself, and, and Louisa received, I'm just gonna tell you a little bit about her briefly before she introduces David. Uh, she received her BA in history from New York University, so I, I did not know that, so we're you know, we gonna talk about history a little bit, Louisa. Uh, she earned her medical degree from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Uh, She completed residence in pediatrics and child neurology and followed them with a fellowship training in clinical genetics, all at Boston Children's. Before joining Connecticut Children's, she was an attending pediatric neurologist at the University of Vermont Medical Center with my friend, uh, Dr. First, providing care to residents uh, of Vermont and northern New York State. We combined, uh, currently, she does many things, but I'm just going to focus on two of them. She combined her expertise in child neurology and genetics and really significantly expanded our program in neurogenetics and really improved access of specialized diagnostic and treatment services for the children of Connecticut. The program receives referrals from all over the state and certainly even beyond the state for evaluation for those kids who have suspected neurogenetic conditions, including intellectual disability, neuromuscular disease, global developmental delay, structural brain anomalies and suspected inherited metabolic conditions, including mitochondrial disorders. Her second major clinical contribution at Connecticut Children's is the creation of the uh, unique Autism Spectrum Assessment Program Neurogenetics Clinic. The service is designed to provide uh, a setting for a thorough, streamlined neurological and genetic evaluation of children diagnosed with uh, ASD and, and Connecticut Children's ASAP program. It is the only program of this type in New England that I know of, and provides cutting-edge care in the field of autism genetics. And patients in the ASAP Neurogenetic Clinic are offered the most current genetic testing available for children with with autism spectrum disorders. Families are counselled regarding the risk, and really, it's it's something that we are very proud of. And and again, now she's tackling the entire division of genetics, and and from that perspective, I really want to thank you, Louisa, for for stepping in and helping us. And uh, I'm going to ask you now to introduce our friend and colleague, Dr. David Krohn, uh, who's going to give us a, a really you know, fascinating lecture uh, in uh, advanced in Newborn Screening 2022. Louisa.
2: Thank you for nice introductions. So it is my pleasure today to introduce uh, Dr. David Krohn, who has uh, made the trip up to visit us from uh, New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York, uh, where he serves as the Director of Medical Genetics and the Chief of Medical Genetics at the Maria Ferrari Children's Hospital. Uh, He's also the director of the Inherited Metabolic Disease Center and the Biochemical Genetics Lab at Westchester Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Croner was born and raised in Dublin, uh, Ireland, where he attended medical school at the Trinity College of Dublin. And he did an internship year at Meath Hospital. He then came to New York to complete pediatric uh, residency training at NYU Medical Center in New York City, followed by medical genetics training there as well. And he is board certified both in medical genetics and uh, with specialization also in biochemical genetics. He is active in the clinical care of children with a broad array of genetic and metabolic disorders and uh, has participated in many clinical trials for treatments for metabolic diseases like Pompe disease, Gaucher disease, and uh, urea cycle disorders. Uh, Particularly, he has been active in the field of newborn screening, which he'll talk to us about today. He has served for more than 20 years uh, on the advisory committee for the New York State Task Force for newborn screening and also the New York Mid-Atlantic Consortium Workgroup for newborn screening. He has written and contributed to numerous publications on topics ranging of treatment for specific metabolic disorders, uh, as well as to development of algorithms and guidelines for management of positive newborn screens, uh, particularly for some of the more recently added uh, disorders on newborn screening like Crabbe disease and Pompe disease. We are particularly excited for his visit today as uh, Dr. Krohn is serving as the biochemical genetics consultant for the Connecticut Newborn Screening Network, uh, which Connecticut Children's is funded to lead uh, through the grants from the state of Connecticut uh, under the leadership from Dr. Karen Rubin. So we are thrilled to have Dr. Krohn here today and have him share his expertise with us. And uh, he's going to be talking us about newborn screening.
3: Thank you. Thank you for the introductions, Dr. Salzer and Dr. Kalsner. And, uh, Good morning. And um, so, um, I, as you know, I've been at Westchester for quite a while. And, and this is, um, I've been involved with Dr. Pass when he was the head of um, the New World screening program uh, in New York. And he invited me to begin involved very early on once I arrived in Westchester. And so I've had quite a lot of experience. And over the years, we, beca- we became a referral center in, in Westchester. And so I think it's, it's appropriate to talk about it today. So um, we're going to talk about little current updates. And I know you have the slides, so there's quite a lot of information here, so that we can direct questions later um, to that. I, as I am from Ireland, I, we speak quite quickly, so, but I hope you can understand me. <laughs> so um, let's begin. These are my disclosures. I actually I do research, actually, and currently we're very involved with research on Pompe disease. So uh, I may talk a little bit about that. Um, so um, just as an introduction we're going to talk about a little bit of the history of newborn screening it's important to, to have the basis and, and also an understanding of why we do newborn screening a little bit about the recommended universal screening panel the RUSP as I'll say and how newborn screening has expanded from PKU in the 1960s to our current status of over 50 diseases being screened for so I think that's uh, important to recognize and also we're going to talk about some of the, the practices that we have in terms of how we how we manage newborn screening referrals um, and I think at the end, we'll talk about some of the things that are in, in the foot in terms of development. Um, there's a lot of things happening in newborn screening at this time. So I always start with this slide, baby's first test, because it is the first test. And, and this is important because this was this card uh, was actually developed, the idea for this card was developed by Robert Guthrie in the 50s this this filter paper is actually sort of the same since the beginning of newborn screening and actually it's become really important because not only can you do the newborn screening testing but actually you can you can actually retrieve samples and do testing later on so it's actually really valuable not only for not only for enzymatic testing but actually for dna testing and it's actually possible nowadays to do an exome on a newborn screen card so it actually can be very important for forensic analysis as well so it has multiple uses And it also ends up as a DNA bank because we can actually retrieve samples um, from patients that passed on many years ago. So it's a very valuable thing. So it's important that it's collected correctly. So we'll talk about that as well. So to begin with, um, this is a bacterial inhibition assay plate. And this is really the brilliance of Dr. Dr. Guthrie in terms of how we screen for PKU. And this is the beginning in the 60s. Here we have an agar plate which contains all the essential amino acids except for phenylalanine. And you'll see that um, you have standards here in the center and these are have a certain amount, certain percentage or concentration of phenylalanine. And if you get an enhanced ring of growth because the phenylalanine leaches into the agar and therefore you have bacterial growth. And so when you have the enhanced growth, that was a sign this patient, this person here, this baby here may have PKU. And so that's how we started newborn screening. This is actually Dr. Guthrie uh, looking at a bacterial inhibition assay plate. Uh, There was an article done on him in Life magazine in the 60s. This is Dr. Guthrie here. And he was actually a microbiologist um, at the State University in Buffalo. So near and dear to us. So in terms of newborn screening, some of the milestones. So I guess we start in 19, I would go back to 1934, when Osberg Foiling actually first described PKU in Denmark. So we're not quite at 100 years of understanding of PKU yet. And in the 50s was when Dr. Guthrie developed this idea for newborn screening. And then he had a pilot's program in the early 60s. And that became so successful that it actually became um, actual practice. And I note that uh, Connecticut started newborn screening in 1964. Actually, New York started in 1965, so you, Connecticut was ahead of us. And so in the 60s and 70s, we had, sorry, go back. Um, sorry, in the 60s and 70s, we had expansion slow expansion newborn screening, hypothyroidism, um, homocystinuria, maple syrup urine disease. And the big advance came in the early 2000s with the advent of tandem mass spectrometry. And this is what really allowed us to expand newborn screening. And this technology um, was used also to, tr- to screen for PKU, in the f- which is being current, done currently. And so this technology allows to multiplex testing and it really became, uh, allowed us to do, do screen from just 10 diseases to now 50 diseases. It also allows us to do enzyme assays as well. So it, it's, the, it's really made a huge difference to what we can do for newborn screening. <clears throat> in the early, actually early 2000s, The RUSP was established um, and there was uh, an important article which I'll talk about uh, later, which defined the number of diseases which should be screened for. And since then, uh, there's been a slow expansion of newborn screening through um, of the RUSP and there have been candidate diseases which have been added over time and we'll go into that in a little bit of detail Uh, in particular pompe disease was was added in 2015 mps1 and xald was added in 2016 and most recently mps2 or hunter syndrome was added uh, in 2020 this year so what is newborn screening the goal of newborn screening is early detection of children at increased risk for selected metabolic or genetic diseases so that medical treatment can be promptly initiated to avert metabolic crisis and prevent irreversible neurological and developmental sequelae so this was the what was thought of in the early 90s and it really applies more to pku because some of the diseases that we screen for now don't always apply to that there is sometimes progression some of the patients do actually not do so well um, but we actually make big make, are making big differences in their health and long-term care so it's actually it is having a, a huge difference So I think of it as in terms of early diagnosis, intervention prior to onset of symptoms and prevention of disease progression. So what diseases are good candidates for newborn screening? So thinking of them in, in general, we think of what are the criteria for newborn screening? So the disorder produces irreversible damage before onset of signs and symptoms, but there needs to be a latency period before the disease onset. So the patient can't be sick at birth, ideally. Um, although some of the patients can be sick within two days of age, so that's that's a problem for some of the urea cycle disorders in particular. Treatment is effective if it becomes early, and that's true for most of the um, diseases, um, and that's really important. Um, and the natural history of the disease is known. So that is also a problem because many of the diseases were only recognized in the 90s, and actually some more recently, especially the CDH, CDGs, and so it isn't always clear exactly what to expect. And we are also by doing newborn screening, we're learning about the new pathology of the disease as well because natural history changes. <clears throat> we're learning more about um, milder cases as, as time progresses. And also there are some diseases in which perhaps they are remain asymptomatic entirely. So that becomes an issue as well. So the prototype disease is PKU, of course, and in the Caucasian population has an incidence of about one in 10,000. And uh, as we know, phenylalanine is neurotoxic, it produces a progressive leukodystrophy. And so patients who were undiagnosed prior to newborn screening um, all developed intellectual disability. And we're actually managing some of those patients now. <clears throat> and uh, actually, they do better if we can manage them, even if they're in their 60s, um, because it, it, makes them, uh, it makes them more stable um, in terms of their, uh, how they interact with people. Also, so the, the newborn screen looks for elevated phenylalanine. Um, which is, has always been the case. Uh, we also look at the ratio of phenylalanine to tyrosine. The defect classically is in phenylalanine hydroxylase, although there are a small percentage of cases in which there is a defect in the tetrahydrobiopterin, the cofactor for the enzyme, and that was recognized um, later. Uh, and it's uh, quite important in consanguinous populations in, in Saudi Arabia, it's quite common. In, in Pakistan, it's quite common as well. Um, And so it's important to look for those once you do the initial diagnostic workup. Treatment is now recommended for life. And also, it was also recognized about the maternal PKU effects. It's now recognized that it's very important that mothers with PKU have to be very tightly controlled during any pregnancy. So um, MCAT deficiency is important because it's really the reason why expansion of newborn screening occurred. And this is the most common fatty acid oxidation disorder. And it mostly presents with hypoketotic hypoglycemia. That's the episode. And so in the severe disorder before we had newborn screening, about a third of patients would die the first time they had an episode. And And the thing about this disorder is patients remain asymptomatic if they're totally well. So they're feeding well, they're doing well, they remain asymptomatic. And so the importance of newborn screening was to recognize these patients and to make the parents aware that these patients were at risk for hypoglycemia, and then have a treatment plan in place if they were sick or not eating, bringing them into the hospital, do IV IV glucose, et cetera. So once we know the diagnosis, the patients don't actually deteriorate. And that's really important because um, it's important that they're recognized early. And this has really been one of the keys of uh, the expansion of newborn screening. Uh, The gene has been cloned and uh, the use of carnitine is controversial, but some patients actually, become quite deficient, so it's, especially the severe patients. And so we have to uh, supplement them as well. So moving on to the RSP itself. So it's a list of disorders that is recommended by the Secretary of the Department of Health. So it's a federal recommendation. Okay, so we recognize that. Newborn screening is a state mandate. Each, each state chooses what disorders to screen for. So there is a, a slight um, dichotomy there uh, which needs to be uh, recognized. So um so the once this RASP was established in 2006 now there's more of a, a sort of a academic reasoning behind how other disorders are added and so that becomes it becomes a, a more of a challenge but it's it's more reasoned in terms of how disorders are added to the RASP and that's that becomes a, a quite important I'm going to talk a little bit about that now so before the RUSP, and this is actually quite interesting uh, there was actually a survey among biochemical geneticists around the country looking at what disorders they thought were, were good candidates for newborn screening. And you'll see that the top scores down here, I think you have the slides, offer MCAD, PKU, congenital hypothyroidism, um, biotinidase deficiency. They were thought to be really good candidates for newborn screening. At the time, I don't know if that's interesting. At the time, um, there was no effective treatment for many of the lysosomal storage disorders, and they were thought to be very poor candidates The lowest score here is for Crabbe disease followed by Pompe disease and the other LSDs. So it's interesting how times have changed. So that's between 2005. Um, actually, the first treatment, the, my, the first uh, myozyme treatment enzyme placement therapy for Pompe disease was not available until 2006. So at that time, there was nothing available. So this is the survey, and this is the status of, of survey. So at at that time it was chosen, um, 29 diseases were chosen at that time to be primary um, targets for newborn screening. And since then, uh, seven have been added. So this is the actual current primary core, core conditions for the RUSP. And you'll see that it's divided into a variety of classes. So if you're organic acidemias here, which include methylmalonic acidemia, propionic acidemia, isovaleric acidemia, then you have the fatty acid oxidation disorders. You have MCAT deficiency and VLCAD. So they're 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 the most two most common. You have the amino acid disorders. You have PKU, maple syrup urine disease, tyrosinemia type one, which is an important disorder, and actually we have a now and a very effective treatment. And you have two of the uh, urea cycle disorders are also on newborn screening. Um, but of course, with anemia, often the patients uh, are sick before before they actually the newborn screening result is available. So that's that sometimes the newborn screen is too late for those patients, and the diagnosis comes later. You have the endocrine disorders, hypothyroidism, and CH, hematological and then since then there's been a series of disorders which have been a- added. Um, so the ones that have been added to the since since beginning of SCIDs, were of course. Um, you have um, hearing loss and uh, critical cyanotic congenital heart disease. Those are actually are important. They are part of newborn screening, although they're not part of the actual heel prick test, of course. But they are part of, new, of the newborn screening program. We have MPS one, XLD, SMA, of course, uh, and these have been added um, since two thousand and six. Okay. the The secondary markers, which are also part of the RESP, are basically come along for the ride because the markers for some of the disorders are not specific and so with one marker you may pick up uh, you may be detecting another disorder at the same time um, most of these are very rare but a couple are important to recognize we do see um, patients with cobalamin c deficiency and that's important because those patients ha- can mimic methemoglobinemia acidemia or homocystinuria in the beginning and it's important that those patients are teased out because they have a different type of treatment um, the rest are very uncommon. In the fatty acid oxidation disorder, Pacom, we see a number of patients with CPT1A and CPT2. Uh, and the rest have we haven't really seen. We've seen a GA2 before newborn screening occurred. When the amino acidopathies, we see a lot of patients with hyperphi. So this is the, more, the milder variety of, of PKU, same enzymatic defect, but different, uh, but they have some residual activity. It's those patients we do see. The tyrosinemia type 2 and 3 are actually not uncommon, and we have a number of patients we're seeing with that, so that's that's important. Um, we have a few patients with arginase deficiency, although it, overall it's a pretty rare condition, uh, and we have one consanguinous family with hypermethion anemia. Um, The Also, you have um, the other ver- forms of galactosemia, which we really haven't seen any of those, and then you have the T-cell-related disorders, and actually, um, so... So actually, sometimes we actually diagnose the DeGeorge syndrome on newborn screening, so that's an important thing to, to be aware of. So here is the, what's happened with the RELPS, basically, and I mentioned those diseases which have been added, and this is listed down here. Also, there have been many candidate diseases which have been um, requested to have put on the rest but actually have been declined because of lack of evidence. And it's notable that Krabbe disease has not been added to the Rust because of the, there's not enough evidence of the effectiveness of treatment long-term. Uh, and initially, Pompe disease was not added because at that, at that time there wasn't enough information on long-term outcome. And it required a pilot program of newborn screening actually in Taiwan to convince the benefit of, of screening for infantile onset Pompe disease. The later onset disease, Fabry disease is a late onset disease, which may added, be added to newborn screening, it is actually is over, already screened for in Illinois. So that's another important point. There are certain uh, diseases, which some states will screen for, which are actually not part of the RUSP, and that's sort of an interesting factor as well. Um pig type A and B is not part of the RUSP at this point, although a new ERT has become available just recently. So that may potentially be on newborn screening as well. Um, so, and these are numbers. you have this in your you can review the slides later. The other thing that 's uh, important about newborn screening is that it 's not the same in every every state, and so you need to recognize, especially if you 're treating patients that are from different states, that they may have been in a state where the a particular disease was not screened for or they haven 't started screening, and so we had that problem initially with with MCAT deficiency, where a patient was born in another state. And the first child was born in one state, and the second child was born in New York. And we discovered the diagnosis in the first child when the first second child was, was actually in the hospital. Well, when, when the second child was diagnosed by newborn screening, the first child ended up with their first hypoglycemic episode at that point. And that's when we made the diagnosis of MCAT deficiency. So they had not been screened for because, well, they were in a different state. Um, so that's important to recognize, and also to know when when they were screened for. Because when you're doing your screen, when you're looking at a patient with, with potential metabolic disorders, it's important to know when they were born and if that disease was screened for so just as part of it and, and there's still many patients who will be diagnosed clinically so for instance with late onset Pompe disease since we only started screening in 2015 there are many patients who are still coming to coming to attention now clinically so just looking at Pompe disease as it's something one of my interests there's it was adopted by the RUSP in 2015, and you'll still see that at this point, it's, not been, it's only about half the country which is screening for the disorder. So that's something to be aware of. And so there are still many patients with infantile onset Pompe disease who are picked up clinically. Um, Pompe disease is a lysosomal storage disorder. It's a defect in uh, acid alpha glucosidase deficiency, also known as GAA, and it leads to accumulation of glycogen in muscle. And you have, uh, as a result of that, you have progressive muscle damage. And these patients, um, especially with the infantile form, can present with cardiomyopathy, um, which progresses rapidly um, without treatment. So usually patients who are undiagnosed will die by about a year of age. Um, so the onset is at birth, generally with the infantile onset disease. With the uh, later onset disease, there's obviously a spectrum in terms of this activity of the residual activity of the enzyme. And so we can have later onset, which can occur after the first year and may go on for many years. These patients may not present clinically for many years. Um, In patients who uh, have been followed through the survey of the registry, patients with late onset disease usually go between 10 and 12 years before a diagnosis is actually made. So they have progressive muscle disease and go, go for quite a long time before a diagnosis is confirmed. So we consider this a spectrum disorder now. Even within the infantile onset cases, since we've been doing newborn screening, some of the patients will have the cardiomyopathy at birth, but some patients do not develop it till uh, maybe one or two months later. So it's actually uh, of age. So it's actually even within that group. So it depends, the CRIM the negative patients, the more severe patients who don't produce any enzyme tend to be more severe, whereas the CRIM positive patients who may have some residual activity may just hang out for a little bit longer before they developed the, the cardiomyopathy. So, um, but usually these patients still will start to have symptoms. They'll be, be floppy, hypotonic, have difficulty with feeding, and eventually they'll be detected to have the cardiomyopathy. Um, we actually had a patient come to the hospital who had difficulty, who went onto the vent because of pneumonia, and eventually they couldn't come off the vent, and we discovered that they actually had a Pompe disease. Um, with the late onset disease, again, it's, it's quite variable. And so how the patients present clinically can be quite difficult to understand uh, in the initial phases. And a lot of patients will not be diagnosed. But uh, as, as it progresses, it becomes much more obvious. We actually had, um, one of the referrals. The patient was clinically stable and, um, a referral from, um, from GI because the patient had persistently elevated liver function tests. Luckily, the, the astute, GI specialist thought of doing a CPK and found out that that was very high. The patient was then referred to us and where we made a diagnosis of Pompe disease. So that sometimes the referrals come in different patterns. So it's something to think about as well. This is sort of quite complicated. This is the algorithm for detection of Pompe disease. And it it varies between states because some states will actually do molecular testing as part of the second tier test. Some will not. So a patient may come to you with uh, an enzyme activity and a molecular diagnostics done at the same time. But often that's not the case. And we're also discovering that a lot of the patients have private mutations. So it's sometimes it's unclear um, if they've ever been detected before, or if that combination of, of, of um, pathogenic variants has been, has been identified. So it can become quite complicated. But if a patient has um, very low activity and evidence of cardiomyopathy, then the, that patient likely has infantile onset, Pompe disease, no matter what the variants are. But it's, it, it's getting better. We're getting better at actually understanding what the pathological variants are. And there is a, a good uh, database of the variants on the Erasmus site. And the University of in Rotterdam, they have a very good site which goes through the variants and helps us understand um, what's going on and also understanding if the patient is a CRIM positive or CRIM negative because that's important for uh, therapeutic interventions later on. So that's something to think about as well. Um, but we're getting, so the patients that we bring into the hospital, we tend to get their, bring them in and we tend to have a cardiac eva- evaluation done on the on the day of the first visit so we can understand if the patient uh, has evidence of cardiomyopathy because we want to start that patient on treatment as soon as possible. So, um, MPS1, also known as Herder syndrome, was um, also added to the rest four years ago. This is one of the mucopolysaccharidoses. Um, it's a defect in alpha L, iduronidase deficiency. We've had a number of referrals, um, but so far all the patients we found have had pseudo deficiencies, alleles. So they do have low uh, activity, but when you do the uh, actual evaluation of the patient, we always measure the urine gags, okay? And, sorry, and these patients will have normal gags. Um, and so, and then when you go on and do the molecular analysis, you can understand the patient may have a, um, one of the pseudodeficiency alleles, and that clears up the diagnosis. So that's, that. Uh, I think there's a lot of referrals because of that. Uh, we haven't actually yet seen a real case, so we're waiting for that, but we have seen a number of, of uh, referrals for Pompe disease. The latest kit on the block is MPS2, also known as Hunter syndrome. Remembering this is an X-linked condition, so that's something that we'll have to think about when we actually do counseling. It actually is screened for already in Illinois and, and Missouri, um, but, um, and again, we're waiting to see how these patients do. There is a ERT for these patients. Um, and also bone marrow transplantation is a a consideration as well. So this is something that we'll have to see how this progresses. And I think there's a pilot program already in New York, and they plan to add it in the next few months, I think. So talking more about uh, generalities about newborn screening, one of the things that I got involved with um, through the SIMD was the idea of timeliness in newborn screening, which is really important in terms of when we should hope to have results on time on critical um, patients. So the idea is that we should have results on patients by about five days of age, and this is a goal, which is part of this protocol. And also, um, all, we should have all the results by about seven days of age. Um, so this is sort of that we can see the patients and affect treatments as soon as possible, especially for the disorders where timeliness is really important in methanol like acidemia, the severe citrononemia patients, et cetera. So try and just take those before they actually get sick, especially tyrosinemia type 1 as well. Um, and so the timeframe um, for newborn screening collection has actually changed when I was in the initial phase in the early nineties was between 48 and 72 hours of age. Now it's 24 to 48 hours. So we're actually moving this everything a little bit up. Um, and so that's changed. And that's an important thing um, to be to be aware of. Uh, and it's important that it's not done before 24 hours of age, um, but on sort of between the, so sort of just before the patient is discharged in most cases. And this shows you the timeline here. So A is being the ideals uh, set. Uh, So a sample is unsuitable if it's less than 24 hours, but actually the newborn screen program will process the specimen, but then will require a second specimen. So actually our protocol is that if a patient is admitted to the NICU, we do a newborn screen on admission to the NICU. So that could be in general with prior 24 hours of age, and then it will be repeated. Um, So that's important. Um, So I think surveys have shown that between 12 and 24 hours of age, the samples are relatively okay, but it's, it's ideal to have it done in 24 hours that's why a repeat specimen will be requested so the reason for that is that um, there are effects in the first 24 hours so there are some maternal effects especially with the enzyme assays so um, it was interesting we found uh, we had a normal assay on a nicu patient uh, for krebs disease and it was done prior to 24 hours of age and then a sa- second sample done at about a week of age actually was uh, positive. It was actually a late onset case, but it's interesting to see that some of the late onset cases could be missed. Um, So it's important for enzymatic analysis um, that they're done in time. In terms of PKU, at at birth, the level of phenylalanine would be close to normal. The patient has to feed, and so before it can reach a threshold where it will reach detection. Uh, And and with the hyperfeas, the the time may be longer. So um, if you do this new one screen a little too early, you could miss a case. So that's why it's important that it's not done too early. So there's just things to be aware of and, why, and the reasoning behind why 24 hours is sort of ideal. So another thing that's going back to our, um, biochemistry, early biochemistry, thinking about sensitivity and specificity. These are really important in terms of newborn screening. And so the, the sensitivity is the likelihood that an infant has the disease will have a positive result. And then the specificity likelihood the infant does not have the disease with a negative test result. And these combine to give us a positive predictive value, PPV, which is very important. So what, what's the likelihood that if a patient is referred with a particular X result, that they actually will have the disease? and and that's really important for certain diseases it's very high for others it's very low or quite low so for instance c3 which is a metabolic marker for methylmalonic acidemia and propionic acidemia we do have a number of referrals for with elevated c3 especially from the nicu where the patients are metabolically unstable and so those those samples we we we're getting better at understanding who are the likely to be the real cases but um, but it is a consideration. And so the, that has a low predicted value. So less than 10% of cases will actually end up with a diagnosis. Whereas with the very long chain fatty acids, um, which we do for XALD, there's a, quite a discrimination between normal and abnormal. And, and so most of the positive cases, um, are at least 50%, will end up having a diagnosis. So you need to know the, the characteristics of the tests so you understand what the likelihood is the patient is going to have the disease because that informs how you're going to manage the patient as well. So it's quite complicated. So looking at it on a schema, this is something that I developed early on when we had a, I did a neo review. If you look at the distribution of of normal results here, like here, and then the actual distribution of disease patients. So if you didn't want to miss any cases, you would have move your move, move your cut off to here. So you wouldn't miss any uh, any uh, you, uh, you move cut off to here sorry. So you wouldn't miss any um, disease cases, but you'd end up with a whole number, a larger number of false positives. Okay. If you want to have very low false negatives, then you, but you'll miss patients with the disease. So you have to figure out what the best cutoff off value, and that's important. That's determined by the the percentage abnormal values on that day, but also looking carefully at the results. Of the work of the patient seeing whom actually has a diagnosis and correlating that result with the patient who's diagnosed so that we can actually change the cutoff values going forward and that's a constant process so that's actually worked in new york as well in the beginning we had a lot of referrals for mcat deficiency for instance and as time went on and we got better at discriminating the positives from the negatives um we have less referrals also we do know that some of the uh, abnormals Especially in the newborn period, can be carriers of the disorder. Especially if there's a little, little bit of living maturity, they can have a little bit of a, a higher level of metabolite, but it's not clinically relevant. So it's, it's some, um, it's, 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 it becomes a little bit complicated, but it, it's important to be aware of, of what the likelihood of the patient being positive if, with the result. So that's an ongoing process and uh, something to think about carefully. Just um, a reminder of how the newborn screening specimen is collected. Uh, we did have issues with uh, collections that were a little bit off at Westchester, but that we've resolved that. But it's very important that the sample is collected correctly. And this is something that we work with nursing at Westchester to you in service to make sure that everybody is aware of how a newborn screening specimen is actually collected. Um, so you, you notice that the, that on the card, you can't really see here, but you'll see the circle here. It's very important that the sample actually goes to the actual edge of the border. If the sample is too small and not filling the border, um, the, the actual volume of blood on the specimen is, is actually low and that could give it an abnormal low result and that could miss the case. So it's very important that it's done properly. Also, these are sort of some of, the, some of the type of cards that end up in the state. Even cards with no blood spots have been sent. Obviously you'll have no result there. Um, a lot of them, if they're clotted or if you put the heel on the card, it'll contaminate the specimen. Um, here, here you have like a lot of blotchy samples. This is not adequate. Here, this sample was flooded. There was a lot of blood, too much blood here. So it's important that the cards are examined before they're sent to the state, because uh, you, you it, it leads to a delay. First of all, not only is the sample incorrect, but it delays di- potential diagnosis, and that could have serious consequences. So it's important that the sample is, ex- is examined by the nursing staff before it's sent out. Also, it's important that it's dried properly um, because samples which are slightly wet and sent out will also be unacceptable as well. Um, It's also important during the summer that the sample is not put on a hot place because that can deactivate enzymes. So that leads to a lot of false positives, especially we've seen for galactosemia. So it's important how the sample is is transported as well, not put on a hot dashboard. Um, So these are all, all factors which can lead to false positive results. Um, So this is what happens in New York. I'm not sure exactly what happens in in, um, Connecticut. So what happens, um, so initially we know that about 10% of uh, samples will have to be repeated. Most of them are done by the the pediatrician. So if it's a mild elevation, the sample will be repeated. And um, if it's negative, that's the end of the situation. If it's a very high level, then that's a red flag and the sample will be referred um, immediately to the metabolic program for evaluation. Okay, um, if the patient has two mild elevations, then that's a referral uh, to the specialty center. In terms of um, referrals also, you do notice in the NICU, there can be quite a number of referrals. Um, and it's interesting that sometimes you see one disorder for the first referral, a second disorder for the second referral, um, and, so, and even a third referral with a third disorder. So th- they can be quite complicated uh, in the NICU and they have to be carefully, carefully followed up. So in terms of optimizing newborn screening, you need to make sure the sample is done correctly. It's transported. Samples are transported now every, on a daily basis. You don't hold on, to, you don't batch samples until the end of the week. Um, obviously the timeliness is very important. And then the confirmation. And, the, and so the, the work of the patients should be sort of streamlined. We have developed algorithms and, and work up algorithms for all the disorders so that we can, so that all the staff can get everything ready when a patient is referred. Obviously, the treatment is adjusted to the individual. Um, Obviously, if it's a mild case or a severe case, that'll depend on how we do. And then, of course, the long-term follow-up is very important so we know how the process is working overall. So um, when we see patients, we obviously, the patient will be called in and um, we'll see what the results are like, and that'll determine how quickly we need to see the patient. If, it, if it's uh, a patient who's some distance away and we're concerned about the patient, we may have the pediatrician, local pediatrician, do um, electrolytes on the patient before we see them. If, they're, if we were concerned that the patient may be unstable, if the level is very high, then we may just have the patient come into the emergency room immediately so that we can do an evaluation there on the spot. So we can do that if we need to. Um, we did, during COVID, we did a lot of telemedicine referrals. So we partnered with the local pediatricians and um, they helped us get this get the specimen sent on the patients as quickly as possible. Um, and that helped us really ma- manage. And we did a lot more um, molecular, di- that's really when we started doing a lot more molecular diagnostics for the patients, because we could do it on a, on a, a finger stick or even a swab. Uh, and they were, it was very helpful to send samples to NVT or GNDX at that time. And that helped us with uh, completing the diagnostic workup. Uh, quite efficiently um, so our patients are always seen by a genetic counselor in the beginning and then we will if the patient's level is very high we may have the nutritionist to the patient depending on what we see and then we will continue the workup and we'll send the specimens as quickly as possible uh, if we need a sub- additional evaluations like if there's a Pompe disease patient we will have the patient seen by cardiology on that day as well and a lot of the follow-ups are done by telemedicine. If we think it's going to be a negative result, we, we generally will do, complete the case by telemedicine, and, uh, and that helps us to, uh, to do it as rapidly as possible. So just, you know, we have a lot of advances in newborn screening in terms of detection of newborn screening. We have the bacterial inhibition assay play at the beginning, the multiplexing by tandem mass spectrometry. The next advances being the second tier rapid molecular testing, which is available in some of the labs for newborn screening. And of course, I just wanted to bring this up that actually there were, there's now consideration of uh, whole genome testing for newborn screening. So that's uh, in the pilot phase, but something that's coming down the pike and something that we should be aware of. Um, it's obviously very controversial. Um, its feasibility studies are occurring now in uh, actually through the NHS in the United Kingdom. They're actually working on this right now, and uh, next year they'll actually start the pilot program. It's going to be a consented program. Uh, it's very controversial. Um, but it's, it's, it's something that that is likely to occur. So I think we need to be ready for it. Um I'm, I'm concerned because of the, the Gattaca implications, but you need to be aware that it's probably down the coming down the pike. Um, they did have a, a focus group in England, and of course, the consenting process is really important. And who will have control of the information is obviously a concern. I think what's gonna happen in the beginning is you'll, we'll just look for the disorders which we actually can um, evaluate or treat at that time, but this data will become available long-term. So basically, it's a full genetic workup at the, at the beginning of life. So very controversial, but just something to be aware of and to think about going forward. So there are some future candidates for newborn screening. This list is not exhaustive. I think Duchenne's pseudostomy is potentially a good candidate as we get better with the, with the treatments, the skipping treatments. Um, that's something that's going to come down and also there's now a very good robust trial that's occurring for gene therapy so that's a consideration. The rest of the mucopolysaccharides doses have, a lot of them have ERTs which are quite successful so they become good candidates, Batten's disease is another consideration as well. So that's that's a consideration so I think we we'll just keep an eye on that. Just the last couple of slides I wanted to talk about best practices for talking to patients so we like to bring patients in as quickly as possible when we have a positive result. And we have, if, if we can't see the patient on, on a Friday, we avoid calling them on a Friday. We try to call them on a Sunday, actually, doing them in. Um, and then we, we have established protocols for managing the patients. The, we try to have the staff say that the results are elevated and please come in and avoid telling the patient over the phone what the disorder is likely to be. Uh, when we had the early screening for Crab A disease, we had patients over the weekend calling for, Duke to arrange for bone marrow transplants. So we have to be very careful with the information. We try to bring them in as quickly as possible so that we can explain the information because everybody goes to Google almost immediately when you tell them what it is. So we try to bring them in, remembering that this is not a diagnosis and we need to see the baby. Um, and so we have a treatment plan in place and that's important. So lastly, um, nuance screening matters. It makes a huge difference for many patients that are diagnosed. It can change lives. Remembering preliminary results are preliminary. Newborn screening has its limitations, remembering that there's quite a number of false positives. And, you know, we need to tab- contact the patients and other healthcare specialists to make them aware of the diagnosis. And having management protocols in place is very important. And finally, just in summary, um, remembering that newborn screening is the largest public health program in the country. More than 4 million infants are screened annually. It continues to evolve with the dolphins, the RUSP, and also new technology. And it's also important that we evaluate. The benefits of each disorder over time, and seeing how they're doing, and and treating on a molecular level has potential benefits, um, but also being being aware that there is preconception and prenatal testing going on. So we now have many of the disorders are being diagnosed during pregnancy. So something to be aware of, and remember finally that the screen is not a diagnosis. Patients need to be seen first. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that was a fast review, but a very thorough and
1: really excellent review. So know, thank well, you, you have
3: access to the slides, so I know that there's a thank lot of information
1: you. there. But, uh, no, I appreciate it. Very incredibly helpful. We actually have a lot of questions. Oh, good. Um, so we have time. Yeah, and, and we do have time. And then I'm also going to ask, uh, at, at one point, Dr. Rubin to come up and just give a little bit of a synopsis of the Connecticut screening program, mm-hmm. because it made, it's just a little different than New York. Um, first question is: Is and this probably uh, how has the advent of gene therapy affected newborn screening and counseling around it? So, gene therapy. Well, gene
3: therapy is, is sort of in the experimental phase. So, there are a couple of the disorders which for gene, which gene therapy is becoming. Uh, pilot programs are are evolving. So, I think MPS one, spinal muscular atrophy, um, MPS two. They're they're in the pipeline in terms of and also or also the organic acidemias, there's some therapies that are also in. It's all, it's not part of the RUST calculation because it's all, that's not, it's not, um, it's not part of the RUST calculation because it's, they're not approved therapies yet. So I don't think it changes newborn screening at this point, but it's it's something to consider. Um, the next question is,
1: can you talk briefly about screening for cystic fibrosis?
3: Okay, so we have been doing cystic fibrosis screening since 2002. So uh, CF is screened for by looking at immune-reactive trypsinogen. So elevated levels, or uh, patients who have elevated levels, are associated, it's associated with CF. Um, so in New York, they do the IRT, plus they do molecular testing, looking for the common mutations. And so if a patient is then, uh, has an IRT, which is elevated, and mutations, or if they have a very high IRT, they will be referred. And then at the center, they generally will do a sweat test. And I think if it's over 60, that confirms the diagnosis. Of course, there are many patients who have a level of 30 to 60, whether it's it's a gray zone diagnosis. That, in general, is how it's done.
1: Thank you. In in follow-up to the SMA, Dr. Julak-Sadi, who's one of our uh, chief of neurology and also an expert of neuromuscular diseases, just as wants to mention that SMA newborn screening will miss about 5% of patients who are heterozygous for point mutations. That's correct, yes. And obviously that has implications based on uh, on on gene therapy which is now available Um, as a biochemical geneticist do you collaborate with the molecular geneticists in newborn screening um
3: well in in new york state they do have molecular genetics so they actually have a newborn screening its molecular specialist in molecular genetics so we collaborate with a lot of labs so the newborn screening does a lot of the molecular genetics for us but we also collaborate with other labs to do commercial labs to do the genetic testing um yeah we do work with them closely
1: so a question from one of our pediatricians how does the specimen get to the testing lab with today's postal service kind of a critique that it could take four to five days to get to the lab it mailed
3: so in generally we have a courier pick them up and transport them to the the, pneumo screening site yeah so the courier there's a pickup that is arranged and this is done through to the state so yeah it doesn't I, go I, the,
1: doesn't go through the post it doesn't go to, yeah so, so Dr. Blummer doesn't go to the post service postal service in Connecticut is the same we have a courier service that picks up all the samples so it, it assures that they don't exactly in the middle of the summer in a heated parking lot right which is exactly that's really a problem
3: because we don't because some months some some years we've ended up like with suddenly there's a lot of referrals we'd like to see me. we have like one a week and um, this just can't be right
1: <laughs> yeah um, there's some additional evidence that stem cell treatment would slow the progression of Cravey's disease, uh, is, uh, which speaks to the, the need for newborn testing. You said it's not included or it is included?
3: It's include, It's not in the Rust, but it is in newborn screening for New York. It so it's not in Connecticut. And it's being yeah. discussed for Connecticut is what I just yeah, mentioned. Yeah, it's, it's controversial because of the long-term outcomes. And again, controversial because of the severe, the common mutation actually, the onset of the disease occurs. Prior to birth, so it's it's tricky. It's tricky.
1: Interesting question here. Can that screening be used for life and reproductive planning, even if there's no current therapy? So I guess testing the mom, I suppose.
3: Well, if you have a positive diagnosis, then we will offer screening to the parent. We'll do molecular testing for the parents often to confirm that they're carriers. Um, then that can be used for future pregnancies. Absolutely, yes. Uh, any data on the
1: quality of sample done in a pediatrician's office versus the hospital sample?
3: I don't know. Too controversial to answer that question. <laughs> too controversial. Okay.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, that's a good answer. Uh, from one of our pediatricians and the newborn service, can venous samples via syringe be used to transfer blood to CART if if draw is done by uh, for another simultaneous test? So can you can you use a We a do drop use it, it. It's not
3: supposed to be ideal, but we actually do do it. So it actually, it's okay to do that. But it's not recommended, but it can be done.
1: Okay, so the answer is that do not do it. You use the the process that's standard. Ideally, yes. Ideally, unless there's some other issue. So, mm-hmm. so, Doctor, so, Caroline, that's the answer for you. Uh, I was going to ask Doctor Rubin to, you know, just briefly comment on, you know, maybe similarities and differences between the Connecticut program and the New York program. So, Karen,
0: thank you. Um, We actually gave grand rounds about a year or a year and a half ago, and at Connecticut Children's we have an integrated model where the DPH, the the lab, the newborn screening program uh, at the the DPH lab uh, reports all the out-of-range newborn screens in all the areas. Um, to the Newborn Screening Network, which is what Connecticut Children's uh, administers. And we have a wonderful team of people that's funded that do an incredible job there. Okay. Um, So we, if for those out of range screens, uh that are mildly elevated or where there's a high likelihood that we think it's gonna be ultimately uh not be confirmed. We often con we contact the PD we contact your offices, you get a call from our team, from our nurse, one of our nurse coordinators requesting what repeat tests to get. For those tests where they have a high likelihood of being confirmed positive and a very, uh, and there's an urgent need for early confirmation and early intervention, we often contact uh, the specialist right away to get those kids right in uh, as soon as possible, just like, like is done in uh, New York. So we really individualize the process to the particular screening test and the condition. Any other questions?
1: thank you karen and i just want to um so Luis, if you want to come up um you know i do want to thank uh, doc you know dr Cron for helping um us and, and with his expert advice for uh, metabolic disorders which is a is an area that he's an expert in and uh, we we really don't have anyone specifically here in connecticut but he's really serving that role so i appreciate that he's willing to work with us very closely and uh, and with with our genetics uh with the newborn screening process Um, So with that, I'm going to pass it back to Louisa to close the Grand Rounds, and then we'll move forward.
2: Thank you everyone again for joining us and listening today, and thanks to Dr. Krohn for making the trip up and squeezing a a visit in. It's great for us to have the opportunity to get to know you, and looking forward to to, uh, working uh, on our babies in Connecticut (laughs) to further optimize our program. But thanks again, everyone.
1: Thank you, Louisa. Thank you, David. Thank you, Karen and team and, uh, and Debbie, who's here as well. Uh, we really appreciate that you've joined us this morning. If you have any questions about newborn screening, go ahead and send them to us. We'll be happy to answer them. And uh, with that said, so please have a good uh, rest of the week and we'll see you again uh, on Tuesday for Grand Rounds. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing, or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org/podcast/grand-rounds.